Good morning. <clears throat> I promise it's allergies. Had them about a month ago. So the Lord and I are having a little dialogue about this. But I did get the rapid test. I'm negative. My wife's been telling me that for years. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's good to be here this morning and, and, and to sit in the back and just kind of observe the Lord's people worshiping God. It's a beautiful thing, even with sound issues. We're very grateful that you are here. And uh, my name is Fritz Games. I'm the pastor of Redeemer. And uh, would like to call your attention to Acts chapter 9 this morning. And as you are turning there or scrolling there, um, just want to give another plug for what started today in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, we're doing a four-part Sunday school series. Uh, Dino Sue, who is sitting right back there, is leading it. And uh, it went wonderful today from every account that I heard. I stuck my head in there for a minute. Um, we do not have nursery for that. But I would highly encourage you, if there's no barrier uh, for your coming on Sunday morning, um, to sit, to sit in a more specific way under the word of God um, as it is taught and not just preached. So um, Dino is wonderfully gifted, um, and we're thankful that you're doing that, Dino. Uh, this morning as I got up, <clears throat> I did my normal routine studying and getting prepared for this morning, but we have a, a young couple staying with us with their uh, nine, ten-month-old baby. I couldn't remember. Um, and everything that he says is a question. You know how this goes, right? Ball? Ball? Daw? Daw? And he, he knows that it's a ball because he just asked five minutes ago. And his parents were like, yes, ball, ball, that's a ball. That's a dog, yeah. And the next morning, ball? Ball? Like this amazing curiosity, Right? I got in my car this morning, my wife had been driving it, and there on the passenger seat was a book that I think was entitled, 10 Questions Every Teen Should Be Asking About Christianity. Sounds like an interesting book. A book about questions. Uh, we are doing a summer series on questions, and we're doing that for two reasons. One, because... We are so scattered in the summer, even with having online capabilities, uh, we typically are pretty disjointed and it's really hard to build a series throughout the summer. So we're doing one that each week can sort of stand on its own. But secondly, coming out of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that I was really encouraged about was the permission that God gives us to ask questions, to ask questions to him, like, Lord, <clears throat> just last April, I already had my two-week bout with allergies. Why do I have them again? Uh, God, you know, my wife and I just dealt with that issue, and now we're dealing with it again. Or... Uh, why is the culture like this in light of the truth of the Bible that is so good and beautiful and true? You ask honest questions to God. 
the Bible gives us permission to ask those questions of God and of the Bible. And so that's what we're doing this summer. Today we are looking at a passage where someone's questions were Jesus' question to Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. I will probably use those interchangeably this morning. Where Jesus' question to Saul leads to a question from Saul to Jesus and actually leads to his conversion. So let me read chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus, named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his strength. Now, verse 13 is one of the reasons that we believe the Bible is true, because if this were a myth or a fairy tale, Ananias with supernatural powers would have said, certainly, Lord, right? That's not what he says. But Ananias answered, Lord, (laughs) uh, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, did you see that? Did you catch that? Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his strength or his sight. Then he rose and was baptized And taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray. 
Lord, for some reason you gave men in the past like George Whitfield booming voices and they didn't even need audio. Thank you for the capability to have uh, a scratchy voice projected today. Thank you that you use our weakness just like you use the Apostle Paul who uh, many historians said was short, had buckled skinny legs, had a crooked nose, and maybe it had eye issues, and he was certainly not eloquent. And yet, God, you, in many ways, uh, grew and equipped and progressed the church under his and the other apostles' leadership born out of weakness. And so, Lord, whether we are here today and just kind of going through the motions or checking off another Sunday, or maybe out of some sense of loyalty or even guilt, we pray, just like in this passage, that you would appear to us, that you would come, you would speak, that you would allow us the eyes to see that we may not just believe, but Lord, we would behold and we would bring others, Lord, to you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we obviously have a conversion story. What do you think of when you think of conversion stories? Uh, for some of you, you may have grown up in a tradition where so much was made of someone's conversion story. Maybe you felt inadequate because you didn't have a story like that. Or maybe, maybe you did have a, a major story. Maybe you got to share that with a church. Maybe if you're not a Christian or you're newer to the church, you have suspicions about Christians wanting to see people converted. Maybe that is associated with, with things and phrases and, and ideas that, that you're not so sure about or you even think uh, negative about. If you've been in the church long, you have probably heard the conversion story of C.S. Lewis. He writes about this in a chapter entitled Checkmate, where he basically describes how God just kept backing him into a corner and kept backing him into a corner. And finally, he says, that night he became the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. A prodigal who is brought in, not willingly, but kicking and struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. You probably have not heard the conversion story of two men in the 1700s in England. Uh, their names were Lord Lyttelton. I wish we would do that again. Lord Arne sitting in the front. Thankfully we don't do that. But Lord Lyttelton and Gilbert West, they were two men that were highly academic and men that they were really proficient in their fields of study and, and people revered them. And they were in the 1700s in England 
at a time much like ours that was very skeptical, very deistic, agnostic, full of unbelief, probably the most since the period of the Reformation. And these two men set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of Paul. And do you know what happened as they did that? They both became Christians because they were so convinced by the evidence that both were true. If you have been around a Protestant church, uh, especially a Presbyterian church, you have no doubt heard the story of Martin Luther's conversion. Some of us get it confused. I got it confused when I went to re-Google it, and I thought it was the story of the storm and the horse and the lightning, if you know that, but that was actually when he decided to become a monk and to seek out a righteous life that might please God and earn God's favor. That wasn't actually what he would say was his conversion. His conversion came in a monastery when he was studying the Psalms and the book of Romans, and he kept coming up with Paul's idea, God's idea through Paul, of the righteousness of God. And he said, you know, the way I understood the righteousness of God was God's active righteousness, that God was righteous. And even though I was the best monk that I could be, and I did everything that I could do, nothing seemed to satisfy. And he said, I hated that righteous God. I did not love that righteous God, right? And he thought God was angry at him. And he said, nevertheless, hear these words, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place where he said the righteousness of God is revealed. And he realized it wasn't God's active righteousness, but it was this passive righteousness, this gift from God that we need, that we do not have, that we cannot merit. Last night, my wife and I watched a documentary on being vegan. We're vegan now because we watched the documentary. I did eat some eggs this morning. But what I could easily do with that, and I certainly understood the health benefits of it, and I'm probably actually going to try it if you want to come along with me. But what I could easily do is I could use that to establish my own righteousness. I could use it to, to puff up myself, try to evangelize and convert other people to that, or condemn and persecute others who are not on board with me. Or just sort of keep it privately that it's just something I do. And if you're vegan, that's fine. I'm not, not what I'm getting at. But what I'm getting at is what Luther would say is we would do anything, like Paul said, to establish our own righteousness. And then that righteousness of God finally dawned on him. And he says this, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. That place in Paul. And now this morning we get to look at Paul's conversion. The conversion of the man known as Saul of Tarsus. This conversion story is related to us three times by Luke in the book of Acts. 
and it's referred to at least five times in Paul's letters. And as we look at this this morning, <coughs> excuse me, what I want us to see is that it is glorious. What God does in this man is glorious. It is something we are to sit in and to rejoice in and to behold the work of God, the sovereign grace of God in Paul's life, but we're not just to sit there. That Paul's conversion is actually unto his commissioning. In other words, Jesus reveals himself to Paul that Paul might reveal Jesus to others. Not to coerce them, not to emotionally manipulate them, not to guilt them, but to love them and speak and preach the gospel in such a way that God's power and his Holy Spirit draws outsiders in. We're going to look at this under two points, but I want us to think for just a second as we read, there are three questions in this text. Did you see them? You probably saw two of them, but the third one is inferred where Paul recounts this story in Acts 22, and he adds another question. And basically, the first two questions are under the first point, the conversion of Saul. Why are you persecuting me? <clears throat> Who are you, Lord? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And then the second one under his commissioning is the one from Acts 22. In the midst of that, before Jesus says, this is what you are to do, Paul asked the question, <clears throat> what do I do? What do I do? So let's look at this under, first of all, the conversion of Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And who are you, Lord? God begins by asking through the appearing of Jesus. He asked Paul a very hard question. Why are you persecuting me? This brings up a very difficult issue and causes Paul to respond by saying, Who are you, Lord? Who, who is this larger-than-life figure who is this speaking to me? Who has thrown me to the ground? Who has blinded me? Who is behind all of this? Who is changing my life right now? And what we see is through this, Paul is actually converted. I want to look at Paul's conversion. Four quick things. Actually, just take the quick out of there. Why do, pre why do preachers say that? We're just going to do this real briefly. First of all, unexpected, verses 1 through 2. Paul's conversion, Saul of Tarsus, his conversion is absolutely unexpected. If you go back, you can easily discern his past. In chapter 7, as Stephen, who is a man filled with faith and filled with the Holy Spirit, so much so that after he preaches the gospel, they stone him. I want to just go to the back and shake your hand. They do the opposite. They persecute him. They send him really, really nasty emails. And they say, we're going to burn down your house. And you know what he does? He prays for them. This is a 
godly, righteous man who really was so seized by the forgiveness of Jesus for his sin that he wanted those sinning against him forgiven. And what does the text say in chapter 7, verse 58? Paul is standing there and they're laying down their garments at his feet. In other words, he is the leader of this persecution. Look at chapter 8, 1 through 3, where Luke recounts Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And because of that persecution in the locale of Jerusalem, what tended to happen, just like in Nazi Germany, people fled Berlin. They fled Germany to other countries, thinking that they might find safe harbor, and that's what they do, but they don't find safe harbor because Paul goes after them in those different areas. Verse 3, Paul was ravaging the church. The word that is used there is this idea of raging fury, ravaging and mauling like an animal. John Calvin said it's the idea of a wild and ferocious beast, right? He was dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. In chapter 22, he says himself, I punished them often and I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And look back at chapter 9, verse 1. But Paul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The, the high priest was like the head of the nation of Israel at that time. Or sorry, the head, not the, the, the high priest, yes. The high priest was like the head of the nation of Israel because they didn't have the state, so to speak. They didn't have their own king at this point. They were under Roman rule. So his permission came from the highest authority and he would go door to door and go into all these cities and gather up these Christians. This was an angry, violent man. No one expected angry Saul of Tarsus to be converted. Do you see the picture? Think right now in your own life, that person that you have written off and you've said, they just will, they'll never be reached by God. Do you see God's ability and power? You see, Paul's conversion was first of all unexpected, but secondly, it was sudden, sort of. Look at verse 3. It was sudden. Sort of out of nowhere, we think. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly, there was a sudden aspect to it, a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice speaking. Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, Paul says this, God took hold of me. The word there is very likened to the word arrested. So in other words, the idea is that Paul was out arresting and right in the midst of that, what did Jesus do? Jesus arrested Paul. 
Anybody been arrested before? You don't have to raise your hand. But anybody been unexpectedly arrested? Or just think anything super very unexpectedly happens to you. Our neighbors had us for dinner the other night. And one of the things that he does is he's a, he does hypnosis. Legitimate trained in it. He actually tried it with us. I fell for it. My wife didn't at all. Knew it. But he was telling us this story about when his kids were teenagers and they were with this guy and his son and the son was sort of this known bully and he would try to bully his parents. He was so disrespectful. They had tried everything, tried every method of parenting, every form of discipline, called the police, all sorts of things. And the kid was just being disrespectful, even, even hitting his dad. And they were walking along and the kids were in front of them and my friend looked over to his buddy and he said, do you want me to handle this? And he said, whatever you can do. And he walks up behind the guy's son and he goes, down. He fell down. Totally out. You think it changed his behavior? Probably not. But it was sudden. And we see that with Paul that he is not expecting. And all of a sudden, a light shows up. And he hears a voice. And yet, just because it's sudden does not mean that nothing happened up to this point or nothing happened after this point. Think about that for a second. You walk into a surprise party. Does a surprise party just throw itself? No. Lots of preparation. You go outside and your flowers are blooming. Do they just bloom on their own? No, lots of cultivation. And we can only imagine as we read Paul's letters what led to this conversion. Even though at this moment was sudden, think about Paul is witnessing Christians. He's actively persecuting Christians. And what he's beginning to witness is how they respond. They do not retaliate. They do not do eye for an eye. That's what he was used to. The law for the law. This is how I act. This is how you should respond. And he saw something totally differently from that. He says, I tried to get them to blaspheme God. Now, why is that encouraging? Because if you're a Christian right now, someone is persecuting you. It may be subtle, it may be small, it may be in your broader family, it may be at the office, it may be your own children. It certainly, likely, at some point will be your teenagers. And the way you respond to them is going to bear witness to Jesus. We don't know all that led to Paul's conversion. But we do know he witnessed many, many Christians enduring persecution and not retaliating. Thirdly, his conversion is personal, verses 4 through 7. God could have given him a scroll and said, eat it. 
God could have given him a library of John Calvin's greatest hits. R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller. What did he do? He appeared. He appeared in person. We'll get into this in the second point, but Jesus himself appears to Paul. Jesus himself speaks to Paul. And notice how Jesus does it. He asks him questions. He could have declared some things. He could have said, Paul, you got this all wrong, buddy. Paul, here's a four-point presentation of the gospel. Here's a, here's a cliff over here and a cliff over here, and I'm the bridge. That's not what he does. What does he do? He asks a question. Now, this is very convicting. <clears throat> I came into this world a declarer, not a listener. Anybody with me? I got answers. Jesus had a question. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, knows all things. Ask Paul a question. And notice he does it tenderly. Saul. Saul. It's not Saul, Saul. It's Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? He gives him time to think about it. He gives him time to wrestle. Why am I persecuting people? One man said that the same grace and truth that Jesus had when he wept over Jerusalem and the same mercy he showed to people in physical healings and the same grace and forgiveness that he gave to his disciples, it's the same Jesus that is now in heaven. Do you think about Jesus in heaven as Jesus is presented in the Gospels when he was on earth with the same tenderness? What we do know about Paul's conversion Though it was sudden, we know that it, some things preceded it. We know from 1 Timothy, Paul says this, what Jake read, that he experienced an overflowing river of God's love. An overflowing flood of God's love. That's what softened his heart. We see Jesus' tenderness to Paul. But we also learn something theologically, don't we? Look again at what Jesus asked Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Well, whom was Paul persecuting? Pretty simple. Anybody? The church. The church. Do you see what Jesus is getting at? Paul? There is, and, and Paul will, if you think about his letters, he will tease this out for the rest of his life. Jesus is saying there is this union, this corporate union between me and my bride. I am the head and my church is the body. What you do to, me, to my church you do to me. It's the, it's the inverse, isn't it, in Matthew 25 when Jesus says to the disciples, 
if you visit one of my bro- one of your brothers, someone who is in Christ and in prison, you are doing it unto whom? Jesus. So if you are loving the church, you're loving Jesus. And conversely, if you're ignoring the church, too good for the church, too righteous for the church, too sophisticated for the church, too smart for the church, too skeptical of the church, and I would even dare say, this is going to take some wrestling between you and God, and I would encourage you to get a counselor, a pastor, a friend to help you do this, but don't ignore it. If you are saying to Jesus, my hurt from the church is keeping me from you, you're keeping yourself from Jesus. Because Jesus has a unique union with his people. He asked Paul a question. Why are you persecuting me? And Paul responds, who are you? You see the exchange. Who are you? That's a beautiful question where we finally say, I I don't have all of the answers. I don't understand all of the Bible. I don't even like everything God says, but I'm willing to say, who are you, Lord? You are Lord. I am not Lord. If I don't like what the Bible says about sexuality, I will not trust myself and I will trust you, O Lord. If I don't like what the Bible says about racism or poverty, I don't care how people are knickknacking about it. I'm not going to trust myself. I'm going to trust your word and what you say because I'm not God. A lot of commentators try to say that this really wasn't a conversion. It was a dream. It was a hallucination. Maybe he had epilepsy. That was real popular several years ago. Maybe he was, had a lot of fatigue because he'd been on a 150-mile journey. But see, we, just, we, we want to take Jesus out of the picture. And what we see, verse 17, is finally about his conversion. It's effective. It's effective. What happens? He falls to the ground. He's blinded. For three days, he's without sight. He's like, I'm not even going to eat or drink. That would take a miracle for me not to eat or drink for three days. But what we see is that God's grace is sovereign. God's power is sovereign. So much so that he has three days to sit in this and ingest this and think about the word of God and think about his experience and think about the Old Testament and think about Stephen being persecuted and all these other peoples. And and he begins to understand God's overflowing kindness and love and that river of kindness to him. Verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that what? You may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose and what did he do? He was baptized into the church covenant community and he took food and he was strengthened do you see what's happened Paul has become a Christian this angry 
man who was not just angry at God's people. That was just the guys. He was actually, Jesus says, angry at God. I want you to think right now about something you are angry about. I'm angry because I don't have a voice. <clears throat> I'm angry because I went to our annual general assembly, and though there were glorious things and beautiful things, there was plenty of stuff just to get mad. Just be like, I'm mad at the church. And Jesus is saying, you can't love those people. You're better than those people. I love those people. And you have to go back to this, this overflowing river of kindness. And we just, need to, we just need to sit in this. I may have told you this before, but <clears throat> I love to ask the question to people, what is your happy place? Right? Where are you just at your happiest? For some of you, it might be a beautiful meal, a sunset on a beach, and a, on a mountain. Maybe it's watching your favorite show. My happy place is after a hard, long, hot bike ride when there's a cold creek, about 50 degrees, and I just get to sit in that creek and watch the sunset. I can't be any happier. Paul is sitting in the loving kindness, the overflowing river of God's grace. And we could just close here, couldn't we? Because we love that God takes angry people and he softens their heart. We love that, that God goes after Christians who become like the elder brother and we get away from grace and we just kind of boil over here and God says, no, I seek sinners. I seek my children. I bring them back to me. We love it when people become Christians, people that we had written off and thought there's no way, and we just want to sit in that and enjoy that glory and power. And yet the last thing that we see here is that it isn't just to sit in, is it? It isn't just to sit in. What does he do? He's commissioned, verses 10 and following. This is very short. Don't worry, we're not going to be here much longer. But in Acts 22, Paul says this, Lord... What do I do? What does Jesus say? Rise, enter the city, you'll be told what to do. And then he tells Ananias in verse 11, go find this guy. I know you think this is going to lead to your death, but I am choosing him, verse 15, as my instrument. And I'm going to take this guy that was once the scourge of the church, was angry at Christians, angry at God, angry at the world, Blowing up Twitter with all his vile. And I'm going to break that guy's heart. I'm going to pour loving kindness on him. He's going to sit in that river. And he's going to go to people he used to despise. Gentiles. Non-Jewish. Those outside the covenant. Those who didn't keep the law. And he's going to realize that I'm the one that kept the law. And he was a lawbreaker, and there was no way he could keep that law. And I'm going to send him and commission him to go tell people about me. <clears throat> I would encourage us this morning as we come to a close. If God has brought you into that, that overflowing river of his love, number one, 
Do you see it that way? Do you still see it that way? Or as Revelation says, have you fallen from your first love? In other words, you just, you just grace isn't so beautiful to you anymore. If that is you, I would love to sit down with you. You don't even have to beat around the bush. You can just say, I don't sense God's love anymore. Murray and I, any of the elders here, any of the people here would love to sit down with you. But secondly, if you don't know that kindness, we would love to sit down with you. We would love to tell you about this Jesus who has overflowing, overwhelming kindness. I want us to think in closing about the story of Ruth. I want you to think about Naomi. If anybody had a reason to sort of be mad at God, it was Naomi. She had a lot of bad things happen to her, had to leave her country, lost her husband, her daughter, daughter-in-laws lost it, her sons, all that stuff. And when she comes back home, what does she say? Don't call me Naomi. Call me what? Bitter. Bitter. She had a right to say that. I lose my voice a little bit. I get bitter. And God's like, yeah, you don't know half what Naomi went through. And what does God do? God takes a little ice pick and starts chipping at her heart. Chipping at her heart. Sends her back home. They've got nothing. Sends Ruth, her daughter-in-law, out that just doesn't seem to want to go away. She stumbles upon the field of Boaz. Boaz is one of the most Christ-like people in the scriptures. He doesn't just have a field for himself. He has a field, as scripture said, for others. And he didn't just let his people glean it and eat of it, but he shared it with others. And he, and he let those who, who were in a depressed state financially come and glean the edges of that field. And not just that, but, but he fed Ruth and, and gave her abundance and sent her home with what? Leftovers. Right? We all love leftovers. And she goes back home. And Mara, Miss Bitter, sees it and goes, where'd you get those little boxes of Havana Rumba? Wow. Wow. You, you, you need to go back to that guy's field. This is good. God begins to soften her heart. But it starts with this man's generosity toward Ruth. And Ruth goes home and she's generous to Naomi. And it begins to change her. I submit to us that that is a picture of God's grace. Taking these hearts of stones, cultivating in them overflowing kindness from God to us so that we are commissioned to share that with others, to not just sit in the river, but to talk about and, and, and love people in such a way to convince them by God's power and sovereign grace that that river is a happy place.
Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of Paul's conversion. May it bring us hope that your power is able to take those we would never expect, i.e. us, O oh God, and those that we know and love and care about. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.